This morning we move forward in John's Gospel. We've spent the last two weeks considering his prologue and the way he introduces the book. And so this week we'll actually get moved and thrown into the introductory narrative in the story of his Gospel. This is the way he tells us the good news of Jesus in this order with these characters and these events. And he does it for a reason. Little Christians, as we go through all of this in our passage and in the sermon this morning, I want you to think of really one thing. I want you to ask yourself, what does Jesus do when He finds us? And I know that's a very broad question to clarify it. Here's what I mean. He doesn't leave us by ourselves. So what does He do with us? This is the good news of Jesus held out to us. In the gospel, as preached and proclaimed to his church through the Apostle John. John 1, verses 29 through 51. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Join me as we pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. You have given it to us by the Spirit that we would hear not just rumors about Jesus, but your very words about him, who he is, what he is for us, that we would get to see what it means for the eternal Son to become man with us, how he, can, how he conducted himself in the world, the things that he loved and chased and cared for. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being those things that he loved and chased and now cares for. Would you be helpful to us this morning as we consider your word? Let us see Jesus and all of his glory and his ministry more clearly. Help us to love and trust him and him alone. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. These are always my least favorite passages in the Gospels, the ones that feel like transitional details. It's kind of like when you were a kid and you would sit at home and watch Sesame Street and they would say, today's broadcast is brought to you by the letter Q and the word fun. It feels like today's Gospel reading is brought to you by dry historical facts that move you from one place to another with a sequence of time and characters named and you're just supposed to hear the station identification and move on. That's the way I normally treat them. But that's not what this is. John doesn't need filler. And this isn't a parenthetical note underneath the good news. This is part of the good news. John is telling us how to hear his story. His whole story is told with intent. This whole story of Jesus and who He is and what He comes to do and what He comes to make of us is told with tremendous, hopeful, and beautiful gospel purpose. And so even a collection of verses that seem to move on the next day and then the next day and then this guy and he said and they did. Nothing really exciting happens in the passage if you think of it as just dry historical facts. Never forget, the Gospel of John is a story from beginning to end that is told with intent. The Spirit of God has given this passage, this book, this Gospel, to proclaim our Savior to us, and He does it here. One of the random pieces through the passage that refrain the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day, are actually a continuation of what I've already told you about John's gospel. He started off in chapter 1, in the beginning, and I said you should hear echoes of the creation narrative. And then he moved into light and darkness, and I told you you should hear echoes of the creation narrative. And remember that when you read through Genesis 1, everything is told to you in a series of days. This happened, and there was another day, and then this happened, and there was another day, and then this happened, and there was another day. You're still supposed to hear echoes of the creation story. This is John setting his gospel still, couching it in the terms of recreation. So we, here we have new creative days, so to speak. And so he tells you, hear it like recreation and now he starts to tell us through the refrains in this passage how we're supposed to listen to the whole rest of the book. What are you supposed to look for? 
What are you supposed to expect as we move through John's gospel? And so over and over through the passage, 20 times here and more than 20 times in the whole first chapter, he keeps using words that talk about seeing or more emphatically beholding, gazing on, admiring, looking and revealing And so we have the strong statement here twice, come and see. Questions are not answered with words, they're just answered, come and see. We had it in the beginning of the chapter in 114. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, we observed his glory. And so now John is setting us up for the rest of the gospel to behold Jesus in his glory. And so he tells the story in terms of coming and seeing and beholding, observing carefully, considering. And so we get this snapshot that what he's going to tell us is going to have to be enjoyed and observed the way that these first disciples were told to come and see If you want to think of it this way, this passage at the front end of John's gospel is his invitation to us as readers and as worshipers to come and see. You want to know what Jesus is like? Well, come and see. I've told you objectively what he's like in those first 18 verses, but now I want you to come and see. Come and watch every story. Come and watch his character unfold through the events of my gospel. Jesus and his ministry are going to be seen and borne out, not in a list of statements about him, not being told that he's kind or he's serious, but actually watching those things play out. This is the way stories work. The, best, the very best stories, the very best movies and TV shows and books are not the soap operas that get tied up in extraordinary events. This guy went into a coma, and then he woke up, and you couldn't believe it. He'd had a twin, and that guy went into a coma too, and they came up, and then they married the wrong people, and then the story went on, and you can't believe the events. Those aren't the best stories. The best stories actually tell you to consider a character and then move you through the events that display who that character is. They reveal who that character has been and who he grows to be. So that's what John and his gospel is going to do for us. He's already told us this is the eternal word made flesh. I told you a couple of weeks ago his whole point is going to be to fix our attention on Jesus and his identity and what his identity means. And that's the way he ends his gospel, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, believe in his name, and by believing in him have life in his name. His name, his title, and who he is is going to be borne out not in a bunch of random anecdotes, but purposefully told, spirit-given stories that display who he is and how he interacts with his creation. So this is John's invitation. You want to know who Jesus is? Come and see. Jesus revealed the Father. You want to know who the Father is? You want to know what God is like? Come and see. So that's the way it's going to play out. What does it mean 
for the eternal word of God to become flesh and take up residence with us, well, you're going to have to come and see along with the rest of us. You're going to have to join the disciples on this narrative journey and follow him to a wedding and watch him celebrate. And then follow him into the temple and watch him cleanse it. And then know that the same Jesus who cleansed the temple with a whip made of cords also wept at Lazarus' tomb. You're not just going to hear some things that he thinks. You're not going to hear a position paper from Jesus. You're going to watch him teach a Pharisee and then confront and care for a Samaritan adulteress. We're going to have the privilege, the awkward privilege, of watching him stir up trouble everywhere he goes, healing on the Sabbath, feeding 5,000 people, and then turning around a story and a half later to tell them they're wrong for wanting more food. John is saying to you, Jesus can't be summarized in five statements. You want to know who your Savior is? You want to know who the great Redeemer of this people is? You need to come along and see, watch Him, listen to my story the way the disciples were pulled along on a very unlikely and sometimes awkward, very pleasant at times and very difficult at times journey. And so John calls us along to join in on the ride and watch him at work. Not just because the things he does, the things that Jesus does are neat, not because they're impressive, but because they reveal who he is. If you're going to have life in his name, if you're going to want anything to do with his name, John says we need to know who he is. And so that's the way this story falls out. John says something of him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but the disciples are discontent with that summary. They have to join him and follow him. They ask Jesus for another answer. Give us another statement. Fill in some of the gaps. And Jesus says, I can't do it in words. I am the word. You just have to come and see. So he acquires for himself disciples. And the next day, he willfully goes somewhere else to find for himself more disciples, to gather for himself worshipers, not to listen to campaign slogans. This is not Jesus' whistle-stop tour where he comes in and waves. This is not his political convention where he stands on the platform and makes declarations and promises and then leaves town He invites them to come and live with him. He has taken up residence with us. And now he says to his disciples, you come and live with me. So he gathers worshipers for himself who will follow him everywhere. They will see him on his easiest and his most difficult days. They will see him when he is the most pleasant to be around. And when they are the most scared of him. And in all of those things, it's not going to be a back and forth where he is sometimes the Son of God and sometimes not. It's not going to be Jesus on his best days and his worst days. Jesus is always on his best day. They just may not be the most pleasant for us. And so he says, come along and see. Come and celebrate with me and weep with me. Come 
and rebuke the lack of faith you see in the Pharisees and celebrate faith where we find it. So John has effectively called us into the story. And if you'll permit me to make application a little early in the sermon, I'd like to do some of it here. Jesus and his ministry need to be seen up close and they need to be lived with. There is verbal proclamation of it that has to happen. But you also have to live with the people who are being changed by it. That's part of Jesus' point in calling disciples this way. That's part of John's point in writing a gospel that's more than chapter long. And so the way that we proclaim the truth to those outside of the church, the way that we gather worshipers should be more of a come and see, whether that's come into the walls of this church building or not, whether that's join us in the theater or not, you should be able to say, come, live with us and see. And that made some of you uncomfortable, and it should have. This is not triumphalism. This is not an overly triumphal view of who we are. You want to see the gospel. Well, we're it. Just come and sit with us. It is wonderful in here. Because you all know better, that's not true. There's good and there's bad. There's beautiful and ugly in the church. And it is never either or for us. We are all saints and sinners, as Luther said. And the reason that this kind of come and see proclamation of the gospel that accompanies our verbal proclamations of who Jesus is and what he does, the reason those aren't overly triumphant is because we acknowledge very quickly we are not the church triumphant yet. We are still the church militant. We are still the church that fights against the curse inside of us and outside of us. We still have to fight for it in our relationships, even in here. We talk about the kingdom of God being already and not yet. We are people who are already and not yet redeemed. And so our come and see invitation needs to include that. You need to know that up front. When you tell someone to come and see, you need to be honest about what they're coming to see. They're not coming to see Jesus' finished works of redemption. You want to see some trophies where Jesus has really gotten it right come to us. That's not the invitation. You want to see what redemption looks like in its ugliness and its beauty. Come look at us. You want to see redemption as a work in progress. Come and see. You want to see us struggle and fail and need the gospel. Come and see. You want to see us lean on it well. Come and see. You want to see us forget it and deny it. Come and see. You want to see Jesus be faithful to people who do that? Come and see. It's just an honest admission, and it should be a very hopeful admission of what the church is like. Remember, as we went through Malachi and we talked about our new priesthood, I kept coming back to Second Peter, where Peter says, You are a chosen and royal priesthood, and you are those things so that... You can proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into his light. 
You don't proclaim your own excellency. You only proclaim his. And an honest invitation for anyone to come and see the gospel at work in you, where you work, with your family, in your friendships, in the church, on your kid's soccer field. An honest invitation to do that will be only a proclamation of the glories and excellencies of Him who has called you out of those things, the one who is redeeming you from those things. It can never be for your own excellencies because they will find out very quickly you don't have any of your own. The real beauty of living together in the church is that we get to celebrate the way that Jesus' grace is changing us, making whole what's broken, even though we don't see it perfectly yet. Remember, that is what I said Jesus was doing when I talked about his ministry as the Word made flesh last week. I said that he was revealing God. He was making the unseen God known. But he was doing more than just revealing. He was remaking. He was remaking us. He is remaking us after his own perfect image. And this is the first picture we get of what Jesus does as he remakes humanity. This story, and maybe you don't feel like I do about it, this story, as boring as it seems to me up front, is the first glimpse at what it looks like for Jesus to remake humanity. He does it by fitting us together into the church. Jesus is not proclaiming himself to individual disciples and then sending them away. He is not saying, here's the message, go tell everybody and live by yourself. He is not saying, let me help you, let's meet one-on-one every week for the next three years privately. Let me work out my redemption in you privately. It's not what he says. He invites them to come and see. And he gathers for himself more worshipers. He invites them to come and see together. He puts them together into the church. He is remaking, like we talked in Malachi, he is remaking a broken priesthood. And it is a collective, interconnected, interdependent priesthood. And so here you even have a glimpse at the Cephas story In the other three Gospels, Jesus has an interaction with Peter where Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, You shall be called Peter, for on this rock I will build my church. You get the renaming of Peter here in John's Gospel. But what's focused on is actually watching him put the broken pieces of his church together. Grabbing Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, and putting them together to come and see together, to come and live with him together, to come and be changed by him together. And that necessarily is what it will look like for him to remake humanity. Back in the spring, if you were in one of our School of Life and Doctrine classes on community, you heard me say this, so I apologize for the repetition, but it's still good for us. Remember I said you should hear this as a recreation story? 
You should hear echoes of the original creation. And now I've told you Jesus is remaking humanity after his perfect and full humanity for us. And this being put together corporately is part of that. I hinted at it last week, but I didn't go into detail. Remember what the creation of mankind looked like in Genesis. And God said, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make mankind after our collective image. And so he made Adam. And unlike the rest of the story to that point, he didn't declare that it was good until Adam wasn't alone. In fact, he said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. Not just, that's unfortunate, but actually my creation of mankind is not good yet. Mankind cannot bear my image, our image, God says, until he's not alone because we are not alone. And so he makes Eve and he takes the two and he makes them one flesh. They have now two individual persons with a composite corporate identity bound together. And then he says, it's very good. And so Jesus is remaking humanity after his image as the one person of the Trinity who became man with us and for us. But now if he's going to remake us after the divine image, he is going to have to do it by putting us together into his body. So Jesus comes to be, in a language we're very familiar, with which we're very familiar, he comes to be the second Adam, the perfect man, And think of that in light of the story, a man for whom a bride is prepared. He comes to be the second Adam, not only to overcome the curse outside of us in some of the particulars, but inside of us in who we are and what we look like in our corporate identity. He puts us together. That's what it looks like for Jesus to remake humanity. And so he starts by building his church. And John starts by telling the story with the building of his church. In fact, John wrote his gospel, most believe, considerably after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Whatever order you take for the first three, whatever dates you might give to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is probably at least a couple decades afterwards. And that's not accidental. He writes his for people to read and to believe and find hope in, assuming they mostly already know a lot of the particulars, knowing that they already are familiar with the characters. You can see hints of it. He introduces Andrew as Simon Peter's brother, Like, you know who that is. Because for his first readers and for us, most of us do. I know Peter. I've read the other stories. He's the the one who runs off half-cocked and says things he shouldn't, right? You know who Peter is when he introduces Andrew. You're supposed to already have some background going into this story. And John is telling you, listen to the story for these Emphases. Listen to the story 
through this filter. Jesus is remaking humanity. This is the new creation worked out. And so I'm going to tell you a very theologically, very historically beautiful story. And so we come back to his invitation. He says, come and see. This is what the new humanity looks like. This is what it looks like for Jesus to redeem. He starts not by becoming pen pals with Andrew and Peter and Philip. Not by setting up counseling appointments for them or becoming their life coach. Not by offering himself to be on call 24-7. You can text me anytime. You can ask me any questions you have. You have to come live with me and you have to come live with each other. You have to come and see together because my redemption is worked out together. I will remake you in the image of God to become the new humanity and my full humanity, Jesus says, by putting you together. Yesterday was Sophie June's fifth birthday. And we got her several gifts. The most exciting was probably a bike that was polka-dotted with streamers named Glitter. And we bought it in a box about this big. And I did not prepare it for her for her birthday celebration by pulling out all of the individual pieces and cleaning them and shining them and then hiding them around the house. I didn't even prepare it for her by shining them up and laying them out on a table disconnected from one another. The only way for her to enjoy the bike, the only way for the bike to be a bike and to work like a bike was to put it together. I had to fit the pieces together and let them perform their individual functions in concert. I didn't just do it any way I wanted to. I put it together properly. I put the handlebars where the handlebars go. I put the pedals where the pedals go. I put the wheels where the wheels go so that everything works together and so that those individual pieces, no one wants a pedal, those individual pieces became a wonderful thing when they were fit together, when they work together harmoniously when she enjoys them and celebrates that bike as a bike and not a collection of parts. And that's what Jesus is doing with us. That is part of what the come and see invitation from John through the rest of the gospel will be. And that is part of what our come and see invitation of proclaiming the gospel will be. Come and see a Jesus who promises reconciliation with God And you know that he's able to deliver because you get to see it, at least in small measure, in the way that he reconciles us to one another. You get to see it, at least in small measure, at the way that he makes us put down our grudges and stop nursing our wounds. I've talked with several of you over the years, and several of you have listed for me wrongs that you've suffered in the church. Sometimes those stories are wrongs you've suffered outside of our church. I'm coming to this church because I was burned over here. Some of you tell me stories about wrongs you've suffered inside our church.
redemption of Jesus looks like not keeping the parts disconnected, but putting us back together, remaking us. And that's where this idea of Jesus building his church and putting us together comes in concert with the invitation to come and see. We'll see it throughout the rest of his gospel. We'll get glimpses of it in John 13 and in John 15 and in John 17. In John 13, he tells the disciples to love each other the way that he has already loved them. He tells us to love each other the way he has already loved us. Because by loving each other, people will be able to identify us as belonging to him. In John 15, he tells them to love each other. In John 17, he prays to the Father that we would enjoy unity with each other the way he and the Spirit have enjoyed perfect, unbroken, harmonious unity with the Father. Delighted unity. This love and unity are more than just learning to get along with people who root for a different football team. And it's more than getting along with people who root for different political candidates. I mean, the way we see it worked out in the rest of John's gospel, this is Jesus' work of redemption. A church filled with Pharisees and adulterers. A church filled with the heavily churched and the willfully de-churched. church filled with the distraught and the self-righteous. So that the goodness and reality of Jesus and his redemption are evidence when wounds and grudges and divisions are abandoned and mutual love and service and the joint pursuit of godliness in shared suffering and celebration are taken up in their place when they flourish and when those things grow and when they fill the church and they spill over outside of us. This first story of historical facts, John is promising us this is what Jesus does with you. Jesus collects you for himself as worshipers. He pursues you and gathers you and puts you together around and inside his worship inside his redemption. And these things don't just display the reality of Jesus and his goodness because they're nice or because everyone would agree they're admirable on their own. It's because these things are microcosms. These things are the fruit of what it looks like to continue to believe and find life in Jesus the Son. To find life in the only one who has already overcome the barrier of our sin that stood between us and our twisted hearts, and a God who cannot have anything to do with the corrupt and profane. He has done this for us in his death and resurrection, and John is going to show us the way that Jesus does this in his incarnation and his life while we lead up to those pieces at the very end of the gospel. Reconciling us to God who alone was ultimately offended by our rebellion. And now, because of Jesus, by whom we are loved as children and made a priesthood and made whole and fully human again.
That's what the redemption of Jesus looks like. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your incarnation. Its mystery and beauty are too much for us. And in it, you hold out to us not just the acts of your ministry, not just the works of your ministry, and those are wonderful on their own, but their real beauty is in revealing who you are and what you've done in becoming man for us, what it means for you to be the Word made flesh who took up residence with us and now calls us through the reading of John's Gospel to come and see, to come and see who you are and what you're like and what you love and what you grieve. We ask that you continue to knit us together. You are the one who fits your body of the church together by your Spirit. We ask that you continue this work not just for our comfort, but for our great delight and celebration in your goodness as we see the fruit of your redemption, not just in the things we say, but in the people that we are becoming as you remake us. Would you do these things for us today and this week and through the rest of September and the rest of this year and the rest of our lives together? Do these things for us. Feed us on your grace as we come to the table. Hold out to us the beauty of the unity you have given us while we break one bread. As we drink a cup of one fellowship with you. You have made us family by your grace. Let us enjoy it and celebrate it. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.